0: Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast from SDI, the home of spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org. This week I spoke with Angie Fadel, a spiritual director from Portland, Oregon, who engages in somatic methods of healing by teaching archery to her companions. Among other things, we discuss the necessity of opening up to being vulnerable in our spiritual journeys, feeling anger and even rage, examining privilege and identity, and the work of deconstruction in spiritual companionship, and how this can open us to excavating our traumas and to engage the work of healing our souls. Angie, thank you for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Absolutely. Um, my name is Angie Fadal. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I also would like to acknowledge the land that I'm on at the present. Normally, I would be in Portland, but right now I'm in Montana. And I'm on the unseated hunting grounds of the Blackfeet and then multiple tribes in this region, but mainly the Blackfeet Indian Nation. I am a spiritual director, and my focus is... My focus is with just anybody, but I tend to gravitate or people tend to gravitate towards me who are in deconstruction, are queer, are looking for something maybe a little outside of the box of maybe what normal spiritual direction is, which I don't think there is a normal, but (laughs) I guess that's how I would fit. Yeah.
0: What does that look like? What's a typical session like for you?
1: Well, it could be different every time, but I can tell you how I typically do it because I didn't know what spiritual direction was when I went into it. I make the assumption that most people have some idea, but maybe don't know. So I would open a session by saying to, let's say, a new directee, you know, this is your time and this can look any way that you want it to look any way that you're most comfortable. We can sit in silence. We can pray. We can do a meditation, a grounding, or we can just talk whatever you feel comfortable. And with my clients, we can talk about anything. I think that often spirituality is relegated to a tiny little box and I think that box shouldn't exist. And so I think everything is spiritual and spirituality is everything. Every interaction we have is potential for conversation. So we sometimes would talk about sexuality or how to deconstruct faith or how to live in the tension of a faith that is undefined or less defined than maybe... The person grew up with, or how to find a spiritual practice when you are not a Christian or any religious affiliation, but you feel that there is a value in having a spiritual practice because my theory is we all need a spiritual practice, whatever that looks like, that can look different for any person, and so one of the things that I do also is I would help people try to find what would feel good to them so Some people I meet face-to-face. We go on hikes. I have a client that loves to hike, and so we meet out in nature as much as we can. We've done that during the pandemic and have just worn masks and stayed six feet apart. Sometimes I do archery like in a session, but I typically use the archery for more unlocking stuff and a person maybe... A directee would want to do something extra, and so they would meet with me separately for that. But I do archery with people that aren't interested in spiritual direction at all.
0: That, of course, is novel and jumps out immediately. Can you, yeah. can you walk us through what it's like to spiritually companion someone through archery?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the roots of that, some of the people listening to this might know intensive journaling with Ira Prokof. I've been trained in the intensive journaling workshop. And I think the best way to illustrate what the meditative archery is, is with a story. So I had a friend who had chosen family, friend, commit suicide. And it, you know, I think that is always out of the blue for people. And also this friend there was no note. So there was, you know, sometimes with a note, I don't think necessarily it makes it easier, but at least there's some kind of, maybe an understanding of what the person was going through. So she was left bereft and moved to Portland. And I think I took her up to do archery because I thought maybe she'd enjoy it. And we were friends. This is before we had met for spiritual direction. And we started meeting on a, every couple weeks to go up there and shoot. And she ended up getting her own bow. And often when we would be shooting, she would just talk about it or not talk about it. And one day we were up there, I say up there because where I go is kind of in a mountain, but we were at the archery range. And she looked at me and she said, I am just so effing angry. And as she was saying that she pulled back the string of the bow and released it, and it hit the target just like twang. It was like a visceral action, and she turned to look at me and she said, oh, that felt so cathartic, that felt so good. And so I thought about it, and my husband also has some training in the intensive journaling. And so we were just talking about how do you recreate a place where people can feel like it's safe enough to share those vulnerable moments A lot of us carry a lot of rage and I'm not afraid of rage and I'm not afraid of people's anger because I think it's necessary. If we are not enraged about what's going on in our world, then there is something wrong. (laughs) So a lot of people are carrying that all the time. And so I just thought, what could I do to kind of replicate that? And through a conversation with my husband, we both realized that one of the journaling prompts would probably work really well. And so I started to use an intensive journaling prompt and taking people to do the archery. So basically how it would look if you were doing it, you would meet with me. I'd kind of say, hey, think about maybe what you want to journal with, rage, anger, grief, loss. So come a little bit prepared if you can. Some people don't, and I can flow with that. And then I would lead you through the journaling, which is all prompt led. So it's all about listening to your inner voice or inner wisdom or the Holy Spirit, depending on how you would see that. And then out of that journaling always, so I've done this hundreds of times, and I've never had a situation where somebody did not get a nugget of wisdom. You'd get some kind of nugget of wisdom, and then I would say, okay, now I want you to draw your target. Usually I have people sit in silence with themselves and see if the image comes up or a word or a line of poetry or something. And then that's what you would focus on. And then I take you through, it takes me about five minutes to teach somebody how to shoot. And so I teach you how to shoot. And then once you kind of pick the rhythm up of it, I stand back and I would say, okay, now I want you to return to the work that we did in that journaling that work that you did. And I want you to now breathe and focus your attention on that work that you did. And I can't explain it. I mean, it's like magic. It really is like magic. And it's not magic to anybody that knows about somatic healing, getting something that's in your body, outside of your body, getting that movement going. But the beautiful thing about it too is somebody, you know, I've taken people through it who won it in a raffle. So they're not really looking to get intense or anything. But I can take them through, kind of keep it a little bit surfacey, And still, the journaling is incredibly powerful on its own. But somebody can barely do it, like sort of phone it in and still get a nugget of wisdom. And then there's just nothing like moving that stuff out of your body and often what I find is our inner voice, and I see this all the time in spiritual direction too, is that inner wisdom, that inner voice always has something to tell us. We just need to listen and also know how to listen and trust it. So often with the rage, I think people go into it thinking there's going to be this uncensored FU rage, which... I'm all for too. I don't have a problem with that because sometimes that needs to happen, but rarely does that happen. Usually there is a moment where rage, usually rage is just something else like abandonment or rejection or loneliness or whatever. It has something to show them. So often people think they're going to be just nailing the target with rage and usually it ends up just being this focus of, Sometimes rage is as gentle as saying, I'm here for a reason. You have got to pay attention to me. If you pay attention to me, we can navigate this together. Or loneliness or grief is trying to tell you something and it just ends up becoming this beautiful grounding, focusing movement that I have yet to see anything equal it, at least for me. And I, I do it with myself if I'm stuck. If I'm sitting down, because I'm kind of an active person anyway, I like to move, and that's usually how I get answers. And if I've had a falling out with somebody, or I've had a, what I've felt like has been a betrayal, and I just cannot get relief or answers, or like, how, how can you move past this thing that that person is never going to own it? but how do I move through it and I've taken myself to to the archery range and taken myself through the journaling more times than I would like to admit
0: (laughs) well it's a it's a healing practice right yeah
1: absolutely yeah
0: so it's it's there for you when you need it Yeah. yeah an ongoing an ongoing tool to to go back to
1: yeah
0: like you said I think I
1: always I always wanted to be more like I don't need it as much as I actually do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you said it. I, there's just enough going on to be angry about. Uh, you oh, know, for sure. Maybe you work through one issue, and then there's three more issues tomorrow. You know. Yeah. Yeah. New processing. Yeah. You talked about deconstruction as part of your spiritual guidance practice, spiritual companioning practice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Say more about that. What does that look like for somebody? What is that practice like? And what is the, maybe the end result of that?
1: I'm going to tell you what I believe. I wasn't trained in this. I went through my own deconstruction process and this worked for me. And then having years of pastoring a community of people really giving God one last chance. So I was in what would, I guess, be called a Christian community of people so wounded and broken and ravaged by church that it was like their last stop on their way out. And a lot of them actually left. But I hope most of them were able to leave without more anger for the church. I just, we just gave them permission to leave, they didn't have to stay. So my experience was. I was at that same church when I went through my deconstruction. I grew up charismatic, evangelical, so many rules, so much purity, BS. And even though I was in my early, probably 30 when I went through my deconstruction, and now I'm going to be 50 this month. So it's been a while. I had a terrible fear that I was going to lose my faith. Then where would I be? Because I actually... For me, deconstruction, amazingly, didn't really have anything to do with losing Jesus or the Holy Spirit. It had to do with my family and the corrosive nature of the church that I grew up in. And because I was in a community that let me deconstruct, I didn't have to kind of decide what I necessarily believed or didn't believe. So it didn't have to be about the Trinity, if you will. If you're a Christian, that's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It could be about whatever it needed to be. And for me, I called it the great dump, throwing everything out, everything that I felt like had worked for me, prayer, the Bible, serving in church. So for the most part, I didn't have to leave church, but I was given this space that it's hard to describe because I don't think it exists anywhere, except maybe my friend's church in Colorado called The Refuge where you can be in a place and really just say, what the hell is going on? And why is it this way? Or what is this about? And not have somebody go, well, you know, let me take you to Revelations 2.10. Or I don't know if that exists, but you know what I mean? And so because I was given that, I can give that back. And because I walked many people who were in my own community at the bridge, I walked many people through their own deconstruction. I can give that. And what that looks like is, it's even in my spiritual direction statement, that thing that we give out to new or potential directees, where I don't think that we have to decide. Deconstruction, reconstruction, this is so I say. If you're in deconstruction, reconstruction, or no construction, I don't think God cares. And what I mean by that is obviously creator cares about us. But my feelings, our creator doesn't stop loving us because we can't decide or if we never decide. So I'm not putting a pressure on any directee to decide, to figure it out, to reconstruct. Be in this moment long enough for something new to take shape. We always are rushing. We're rushing to figure it out. We're rushing to plaster on a Band-Aid so we can get through it. And I completely understand that. And I don't think it's bad or wrong to at different times go, okay, I can't take anymore. Like in therapy, there are times when you have to tap out of therapy or say to your therapist, I need a break from looking right now at the trauma could we work on something else? And that is completely normal and acceptable. So I understand that. And maybe that's the band-aid that I'm talking about is you can put that kind of a band-aid on it. But what I don't think is healthy is to rush yourself to make any kind of decision on where you're going to end up. Mm -hmm. And it is painful and uncomfortable. And I would also say scary to stay in that kind of tension with no answers. I didn't have any answers. And I would say to myself, maybe a year into my own deconstruction, maybe I'll try prayer. And so I would try out prayer. And if it felt okay, I didn't say, I'm going to pray every day now. I'm going to do a devotional or whatever. I would pray then. And then if it felt good another time, I would pick it up. And sometimes it didn't feel comfortable. It felt ill-fitting the Bible still is very much that way for me. There's so much patriarchy and violence done in the name of God and the Bible being the weapon used to annihilate indigenous people and women and enslave black and brown people that I'm not saying I've thrown it out, but it is not my first source. I usually sit in silence and meditate or try to find my connection with Creator. The Bible is not my go-to. So I let, I just let people be in the tension of it. And I also don't, if they don't want to be in that tension, they don't have to be. My thought is, you know yourself better than I know you. And I can hold whatever tension you need me to hold. And I can also say to you, like I had a, I'm not giving anything away at a person um, who was married to a woman, so she's lesbian, had been experienced a lot of rejection in the church, and was thinking about going back to Anglican or Catholic type faith, more ritual kind of based. That's not a good way to put it. But like the high they, church, Yes, like, high church. Like, like thank you. High liturgy kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. Because as a child, she had had such a positive experience within that high church. And so we had a conversation of how do you feel about the possibility of being rejected? Because they don't recognize the queer community. And what can you live with? What are your non-negotiables? What can you live with now? because you need it, where you're also not being authentically who you need to be. Because you deserve to be loved and accepted by the church, full stop. That's not happening, so what can you live with? So having those kind of really open, hard conversations and then leaving it with the directee that they know what's best for them. I'm not looking at it as me having... I have their best interest at heart, but I am not them. So I do something that I call therapeutic listening, where I do have a lot of my own personal experience. I've been through my own trauma. I've done a lot of work in therapy. I will continue to do that kind of work. I think it fits really well with spiritual direction. I am not a therapist. So I also encourage my clients to be in therapy if they feel like they need it but also tell their therapist the things that I'm saying. So, you know, I'm not doing anything that would counter what their therapist wants for them. But I also say, you're an adult or you know yourself better than I do. So I'm not gonna meet up with you next week and go, hey, did you do A, B, and C of what I told you to do? I'll say, hey, do you wanna talk about what we talked about the last time we met? And if they don't wanna talk about it, we're not gonna talk about it. Because I trust I trust the work of the spirit in them and I trust their ability to know what they need when they need it. And if they don't, I also think that I'm intuitive enough to push where I need to push. Does that make sense?
0: Of course. Yeah. Okay. uh, Your friend who's, it was their child who committed suicide.
1: No, it was their friend, but yeah.
0: Their friend. I'm sorry. And, you know, just like, so effing mad and then like it just comes out right like that just had to be said aloud and yeah we didn't ask like how are you doing with your friend's suicide you know yeah (laughs) you hold the space and and you know people share what they need to share i think we learn to intuitively know what is within us Mm that the the, the inner voice which i would even call the voice of god um, yes within and sometimes gets covered up by so much this just this junk. And that can be a lot of, you know, I don't even mean that necessarily negatively, but just a lot of stuff. And the deconstruction that you talk about, I think speaks to that too. It's just like, let's just clear some of this clutter, figure out like, mm-hmm. how are really do What is really at your essence and what is true? What is true yeah. and what is real? And I think we all... Anyone on a spiritual journey has to go through this process. Oh, for sure. (laughs) You know, what did we inherit? What were we taught about spirituality? And Mm -hmm. eventually in our walks with God, the divine or spirit or whatever, I believe we have to kind of figure out like, is this work? Is this true?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't you think that, I think if we dug a little bit deeper into what you're saying, or maybe this is actually what you're saying, that's our problem. That's our spiritual problem. That's our cultural problem. That's our world problem is we are not staying in that tension long enough to own the things that we've inherited. So my spiritual direction sloshes into social justice work too, because that's the thing that my clients want to talk about. And that's something that I'm passionate about. So How can I be anti-racist in spiritual direction? How can I be an abolitionist within spiritual practice if we are not deconstructing this damage that the church has done? And I know this goes out to more than America, so I want to speak to, I do understand that. (laughs) What we're seeing in our country right now, I would say, also as a responsibility of the church or religious communities and our lack of reflection. And not just our lack of reflection, but it's almost like a a do as I say, not as I do. So do you have children? Yeah,
0: I have one son.
1: So it is so tempting (laughs) as a parent to say do as I say, (laughs) but not as I do. Because it is hard to heal yourself and take ownership while you're also trying to help somebody develop as a human being, develop awareness and empathy and all these things that, yes, some of it comes naturally, but you know, it has to be honed and helped and nurtured. And I think that the church has done that to its people. Do as I say, not as I do. Look at my terrible track record and ignore it. Look at my terrible track record to black and brown people in the United States and abroad. I'm not going to say sorry, make any kind of reconciliation or reparations. Look at my track record with women. It's abysmal. I'm not going to make any reparations. I'm not going to change any of my structural racism and sexism and then look at how I've treated LGBTQAI plus people. I'm not going to do anything about it, but I do expect you as the body to say sorry. I wasn't taught any kind of reconciliation within the church, but we're taught to, in our relationship, at least as Christians, taught poorly, I believe, to say sorry and develop, reconciliation, if at all possible. I think we do a terrible job of teaching people how to do that. It's usually, well, it's all water under the bridge. <laughs> you know, I damaged you beyond repair, but I said, sorry, so that's enough. And I think that what you're talking about, you got me really excited because I hadn't thought about it in those terms, is the deconstruction, yes, has to be on an individual-by-individual basis and it is painful and it is uncomfortable to admit our racism, our sexism, but if we do not start doing that and doing that as institutions and then also making the changes, then we're just doing that thing again and slapping a band-aid on something and we're going to get more of what we have already had, which benefits a very small amount of people and the majority of people keep suffering and saying, why don't you see me? And that's I do think that's why as a spiritual director, it is so important to do your own work through meeting with a spiritual director, through supervision as well. But I would even go as far as saying, get yourself in therapy and find a therapist that would actually challenge you on the things that you believe. Because the damage we can do to people not just spiritually but psychically all of these you know more trauma on trauma but also the healing that we potentially can do in this world is huge i mean we have the potential to hold space for some of the most traumatic things and not have to answer it for people and also because we've done our own work, stay in that space for long enough for people to actually move through some kind of healing, because we're also willing, if you do your own work, then you're also willing to own what you need to own. You can't just do work and not own anything. So I think that is a powerful thought. (laughs) I really haven't thought of that before, and I'm going to be thinking about that for a while.
0: Angie Fadal is a certified spiritual director with an MA in spiritual formation, but don't let that scare you. She spends most of her time specializing in somatic methods of healing archery, hiking, meditation, and mindfulness. She's always looking for ways to empower and connect the mind, body, soul, and spirit. She is the founder and creator of Soul Care and Meditative Archery and co-founder of Collaborative Arts Troupe Agents of Future. Support for this podcast comes from Siena Retreat Center. Are you passionate about the spiritual growth and transformation that comes from the practice of spiritual guidance? Siena Retreat Center, located on Lake Michigan between Chicago and Milwaukee, is seeking an experienced leader in the area of spiritual companioning. The full-time position of spiritual guidance coordinator involves the collaborative leadership of the center's two-year spiritual guidance training program. We invite you to explore the job description, at www.siena I am doing a lot of this work myself too, and as I learn about systemic injustice and also just like ancestral inheritance,
1: right? Yeah.
0: You know we carry we carry the the DNA and the genes of our ancestors. We also inherit family traits and personality. Yeah. All of that and we also inherit these systems these evil systems these broken systems yeah and i did not invent them <laughs> but we have them right and yeah so i understand why it's hard for people but if, if we do the work right then we can actually be pretty liberated from those things. no kidding yeah and yeah if we don't do that then we as you said we just slap a band-aid on and move on we just we continue like down to the next generation, right? We pass Mm -hmm. on those negative systems, those evil systems, those negative traits. And we actually have the opportunity on the spiritual journey to heal those things and to like correct them in, in our situatedness, in our bodies and in our relationships. And it's very liberating. It's very exciting. You have a podcast called soul care and It's a wonderful podcast. It's basically like you offering spiritual direction to people Mm -hmm. about it. And I think of it because like this process of deconstruction and in this country and the podcast goes out beyond the USA, but we live in the US, right? That's where you are. And it feels very much like a deconstruction process is happening right now where the wounds are being laid there, right? The the band-aids are being ripped off. Mm -hmm. And it's not fun. 2020 has been <laughs> hard. I, I can't think of anyone who's like, 2020 has been
1: great. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. I,
0: know, like, like, I think the
1: introverts are even saying, yeah, kind of getting tired of
0: it. <laughs> yeah. You said something, I think, really profound. You were like, I don't want to go back to the way things were in one of those episodes that you did. You mm-hmm. were talking about, you know, we're in this pandemic, we're dealing with. Racial injustice and broken politics and climate crisis and you know whatever else. And it's like, like I'm into like 80s music and 90s music and sometimes like as escape, I'll just go watch old like YouTube MTV videos from my like, <laughs> Tears like, for Fears, Tears for Fears and Pomps and <laughs> and stuff. And
1: oh, like, here, was- wait, pause, pause for one second. <laughs> my dream band, my cover band with my husband and then some friends of ours was going to be. Tears for Twins, Thompson Twins, and Tears for Fears. Oh, wow. Combined, because harmony is galore.
0: Yeah, it's two things. <laughs> that should have gone together very naturally.
1: But, you know, I'll remember, like,
0: being at an age where that just, I wasn't worried about this. You know, I was like, wow, I wish I could go back to, like, 1995 or something. You know, no, there's no going back to 1995.
1: Plus, I mean, I'm a Cold War kid. I didn't exactly grow up with having to do the hiding under your desk things that are probably maybe not our parents' generation, but maybe people in their 60s now grew up with those drills where they had to hide under their desks. But I did grow up terrified that we were going to be nuked by Russia. That is my whole childhood and the rapture. Thank you, Evangelical lot,
0: Church. Lot of
1: <laughs> yeah, it's so apocalyptic. But I have said to my daughter and my son, my son is 20 and my daughter's 18. I've apologized to them. You know, I can apologize and make changes, but we all know there are very limited things that the everyday person can do to change what's happening, climate change, you know corporations have to change for, we can do little things. And I do believe in that, but you know, I've said to them, like, we grew up thinking that we were going to die, but it was a button and it's just a different thing. I think we were afraid of nuclear Holocaust and we've given this generation, not only nuclear Holocaust, but a pandemic and Climate change that they will see in ways that I think scientists can't even predict. And we did know it was going to get warmer, and it has gotten warmer, but you and I both are in the Northwest, and we are seeing forest fires like have never been seen in the history of at least where I live in the Portland area and surrounding, you know, Eugene. And I mean, it's gotten really close to Portland right now, but. I have lived there my entire life. And, you know, I've lived in overseas for years, but for the majority of my life, I've grown up in the same area and I have never seen this ever. So we're giving them something that they can't fix necessarily. I mean, there's still hope. I always cling to hope, but you know what I mean? Like all I can do is say sorry and try to do better, but There is no better. Like That's the thing that I crack up and I'm not gonna get into politics, but making America great again was only great for some people. And I am white, so I benefit from that. And I I do wanna say, I know that there are poor white people. I have lived below the poverty line for most of my life. That does not mean that I don't have access two things, and the privilege of walking around in white skin, which means that I won't be targeted. So I think we have to sit with that again, like that deconstruction piece you were mentioning. We have to sit with the weight of that, especially as people that believe in something beyond ourselves, wherever that falls for anybody listening, agnostic, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, whoever that is, whoever you are, if we believe there is something beyond us, then we have to sit with the weight of not doing something, of benefiting, of staying comfortable. And I love to be comfortable. And I love to eat delicious food and have heat in my house. And there is nothing wrong with being comfortable and having what you need. But We all should have that. We all should have access to a spiritual director. I mean, during the pandemic, I've lost directees because they don't have the money to pay for it. I offer sliding scale and I offer lots of different ways, you know, and if somebody reached out to me and said, hey, I still need to meet with you, could I meet with you for free? I would for sure do it. But, you know, different people feel more comfortable or less comfortable about that. But I believe that people shouldn't have to fight for healthcare. People shouldn't have to work three or four jobs to survive. People should have an affordable place to live. All of these things are things that we have to reckon with. And the way that I believe is I believe that everything, like I said in the beginning, everything is spiritual, And spirituality is everything. It is all spiritual. And if it all is spiritual, then we have got to reckon with why we aren't doing anything about whatever it is. Nobody gets anything done by being shamed. And I don't think guilt actually works all that good. But we could feel something about whatever we're not doing, whatever we're afraid to look at, And what I would say to a directee, if this came up in a session, is I would say, if you are afraid, that is normal, and that is a human response. Of course you're afraid. I have done some messed up stuff because I was ignorant. And as much as I've been able to do, I've taken ownership, and it has been humiliating some of the time for the things that I've done because of what I was taught growing up you don't have to take on everything at once. Dip your foot in the pool. You don't have to do like a nesty plunge. That's a commercial from the 80s where you just throw yourself into the whole pool because that's not sustainable. Just like when I was, you know, pastoring the bridge, I was like, you know, people would go, okay, I want to start doing a quiet time and I think I'm going to do an hour a day. And I'd be like, okay, slow your roll. <laughs> how about how about you start with 5 minutes every other day or 3 days a week and see how you go. And if it feels good, you know, tack on another 5 minutes or if you get lost in the moment, stay with it if it feels good. But I guarantee you if you set yourself up and an hour a day, you're setting yourself up for failure. And most of us don't respond well to our own failure unless we can look at it the way failures intended to be looked at it as like a learning experience. But most of us were not raised that way. So it hits us in who we are as people. It hits us in our value instead of, oh, this is just a learning thing. and Oh, how silly of me for thinking I could do an hour a day. So I would say, let's say you're looking at your own privilege as a white person. I would say, okay, start by sitting in stillness with yourself and just kind of see what comes up. And if something comes up that you remember, just sit with it. Don't shame yourself or go, you can't do something different if you didn't know how to do it different at the time. You can only change what you know how to do or begin to change when you kind of go, oh, maybe there's something different. And I would say, start by reading a book that is well-respected by a person of color. Start by catching little things that you do that maybe you didn't realize that you did. And instead of what a lot of times we do as white people is we make black and brown people hold that for us or explain it to us. And do all the labor for us. We need to start holding our white brothers, sisters, queer folk accountable and calling each other out with love and kindness. Or just to go, let's talk more about that. Where does that come up for you? Or not call out culture necessarily, but just go, hey, tell me more about why you think that. But we have to begin with ourselves. And... I think if we begin with kindness, kindness towards ourselves to go, okay, I just have to remind myself, I was repeating what I was taught. And what I was taught was racist, sexist, and homophobic. And I was afraid to do it wrong. So I'm embarrassed now and I feel ashamed about that, but I can change it now. I couldn't necessarily change it then and leading with compassion for ourselves. I'm reading this book right now that you might've heard of, How to Be Anti-Racist. And he's black and one of the things that he doesn't have to do, which I see is as somebody that leads with vulnerability, that is a high value of mine and that is how I do relationships. He does it as a writer like I have never seen. Maybe Brene Brown does this as well, as well as he does. But I just think he doesn't owe me as a white person anything, any part of his story. But he, every chapter, he tells a story about a way that he did the very thing he's trying to teach other people to pay attention to and not to do. He leads with vulnerability and it's so engaging And He holds this space for the reader to go, okay, he didn't get it right. I didn't get it right. There's room to grow, which is also, I think, what we do as spiritual companions is we're saying, one, I don't believe there is a right way. I think there's less wrong ways to be a human in the world, but I would be less black and white about it. But I'm going to hold that space with my own vulnerability and tell my own story if it needs to be told because we need that from each other. To me, that's true companionship is I don't want a relationship with you that is one-sided. What's the point of that? It doesn't benefit you and it doesn't benefit me. Well, it does, depending on whose side it's on, it could benefit that person because there's no vulnerability there but I want to create a container that can hold or nurture a container that can hold any kind of tension. In my spiritual direction statement, I do say that there is nothing off topic. Being a pastor kind of church that I was a pastor at, I heard it all domestic violence, rape, suicide. I've held space for all of that and had to get restraining orders and all different kinds of things. So I can hold space for people and walk them through those kind of things, because I don't think those have to be the end. Sometimes that, those are the beginning for people. And
0: I mean, to not be vulnerable, you know, is, is kind of be fooling ourselves. I mean, we are, we are all human and you are, you know, in your, in your ways and your practices, you are inviting us to like recognize that. And, I believe we should respond with curiosity, and oh yeah, and some humility too. I think that guilt or embarrassment, or whatever I call those like false self things it's like the sort of mm-hmm. thought that we put on that like we 're all put together and we 're perfect and we have no problems and that's not true it's never true and I think as spiritual companions, part of our work is to sort of it's like alchemize those negative you mm. know, the, Rage is not a negative feeling. Anger is not a negative no. feeling, right? But like guilt or embarrassment, right? Like I think we can help steer that into curiosity. Yeah.
1: I love that. Alchemize it. The thing is, it all has something to show us. And most of us have seen things that we didn't think we could bear. And we didn't think we could get up from. And we're here. Yeah. And... That is helpful. It's very similar to the power of seeing yourself in media, how powerful that is for people to see someone that looks like them in media, in leading companies and being doctors. It's so powerful. It's also powerful to know that somebody survives something I survived a traumatic childhood and I am a survivor of sexual abuse and I am very open about it because that all existed in the dark. So I am not going to keep that thing in the dark behind closed doors where the abusers wanted it to be. And I'm not expecting my clients to keep it there. I'm not pushing them to talk about anything they don't want to do to talk about, but it is safe to talk about it with me. I have survived it. I'm going to be spending the rest of my life on and off in therapy because of it. And that's okay, and I'm moving forward in the world as somebody that's not defined by it, but it it does make up part of who I am because it's a life altering thing that happened to me over the course of my childhood. Also a lot of my clients are survivors of sexual trauma or abuse, both physical and emotional abuse, either by parents or grandparents or spouses. And it helps me to know that there are other people out there that are farther along than I am and that have survived it, not only survived it, but are living and altering the world, like the alchemy that you're talking about. God, I love that word. Because I get all uh, (laughs) like... Sci fi in my head, but you know, those are the things that if somebody, you know, I'm not going to dump my whole story on somebody because that's not their job to hold that for me. But most people know about it because I'm open about it. So, me being open, us being open about the things that we can be open about, or you know, where we are in our deconstruction if we can talk about it or what it was like for us somebody that's in it at the beginning of it maybe could sit in it a little bit longer because they know that we did. Or they don't have to be alone. Maybe this is the wrong way to put it, but we have a pandemic of loneliness in our world and vulnerability and connection because I would say that it's really difficult to have true connection without vulnerability. I think it's the cure. And one of the ways we do that is spiritual companionship, especially if we're doing it by leading with our vulnerability and creating a container where people can be fully who we are, who we're supposed to be. Like there's a, I think it's agrarious, but I'm not good at quoting those desert fathers. So don't quote me on it. But I remember hearing one of those guys, my sister calls him cotton
0: tops.
1: (laughs) (laughs) One of those guys saying something about God being in love with a human fully alive. Mm -hmm. And it just blew me away and it still blows me away today. God wants us to be fully human, fully alive, to embrace all the foibles of our humanity. That's why God created us. If we believe in God, if we believe in creation, that's what the story tells us. We weren't created to fill space and fill time. We were created as God's friends. And so then that's mutuality. And then in mutuality, I would say you can't really have mutuality without vulnerability either. So that's that that flow that we're constantly trying to get in is like trying to be fully alive.
0: Life invites us into experience, good and bad. And those traumas, those pains that we endure over the course of our lives, we are not the wounds, but we carry them. Mm -hmm. I want to be careful here. I mean, I have my own woundings, but they, from my perspective, they create wisdom And they invite us into empathy for other people who share those wounds. And I think sharing speaks to that. It's like, I would never ask for this for myself or for you, but we have them and let's be open about them and share in our experiences and our stories and yeah, inviting us to be fully human, which is kind of be open with all of that.
1: Yeah. I think you're right. Like, I wouldn't wish what happened to me on any other human being. And if I could change it, I would change it. I can't change it. That person who did what they did to me took enough from me and I'm not going to allow them to take my life as well. I'm not gonna allow any more of my life to be taken, which requires me to do a lot of work. And it is completely unfair. It is not right. And still it happened. And so I moved through it. But like you're saying, none of us are saying trauma should happen. Trauma does happen. So how do we move and live and love ourselves? Because that shame is corrosive. And nobody that trauma happened to should have to carry shame. But it somehow translates to that because of usually the victimizer is the one that Whatever victimizing we're talking about, racism or traumatic events that happen or abuse or whatever it is, what they did, whatever it was, somehow they benefit from us staying ashamed of it. We don't get the freedom that we deserve until we can start to move through that shame. And sometimes that shame, I would say for the most part, I am free of the shame that said full honesty and disclosure, it still comes up for me because I'm human and things trigger it and I don't live in a vacuum. None of us do really. So all of these things also that are happening in the world now, if we have any kind of trauma, even if it is generational trauma, maybe we can't name the trauma. And that's what I mean. Like sometimes we can't name generational trauma because we don't know what we're carrying. We still have it. And so all of these things like the pandemic and climate change and the violence that's happening in our world, all of that is enough. One of those things is more than enough. But we're reacting in a strange way because we don't realize it's also tapping into that generational trauma. One of the things I noticed, we got out of Portland because my daughter has She's getting ready to go to college and she has some anxiety and then my husband has asthma and we had an option, which is a privilege, and I recognize that, to get out of town and come stay with my sister because we've both been quarantining and so we didn't have to really worry about that on top of everything else. And when we made the decision, we had to also pack like we could be evacuated, which was a strange experience that I haven't yet unpacked. What do you find valuable that you can't replace? All that kind of stuff. And I locked into this, okay, we got to do this. We got to do this. Do we have our passports? Do we have this? And I had enough wherewithal to stop myself in the moment and go, I am really good at trauma because I know how to do it. I'm really good at crisis because I know how to do it. So I can go, my daughter's crying and I can try to be present with her and go, I, I understand this is hard. There's so much else going on. This is just another thing that you're having to like cope with and figure out. But inside, I am like totally calm. But it's not calm. It's just I know how to do this thing. And then we're driving and something happened with our car that we weren't sure about. And I just, then the trauma came in. Tiny little thing. And I was like, I knew it was going to happen. But I just, Also like learning myself and teaching other people just because you can doesn't mean it's healthy for you. Just because I can hold a lot and I existed in a lot of crisis and I know how to do that doesn't mean it's healthy for me. So I do want to also take those moments to go, okay, yes, I can hold a lot. That doesn't mean I should or I have to. So I'm going to let some of this Anxiety go. I'm reading a book called I don't know if you've heard of it, um, My Grandmother's Hands. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so good. And one of the things he says that I've heard before, but I often forget about it is when you see something come up, you don't have to do anything about it. Just acknowledge it. It's a meditation trick too. So I just kind of go, okay, I see this thing. I'm good in a crisis right now, so that's what I can do right now. I am going to look at it later. I think also people still in this time are thinking they should behave better or not react to things. And we're human and we're living in something that we've never lived through before. And on top of it, we have wildfires and people fighting for their lives. So we can't be expected to behave in the ways that we've always behaved. We can just try to be kind and self-aware in the process.
0: Yeah. This is a really beautiful sharing I want to honor your time. Angie, is there anything else that you would like to share that you haven't had an opportunity to do?
1: All I would like to say to people is what I need to hear for myself. So one of the things that I do is if people want to find me, you can put my information in the show notes or whatever you do. But one of the things that I do is I create mantras And usually they're from either conversations with people or my own stuff that I'm working through. So a big mantra for me has been, I am enough. I'm a two on the Enneagram. I've done a lot of work around my Enneagram type and often I feel like I'm not enough. So I have a a mantra that I created, I am enough, I am enough, I am more than enough. What I believe the beauty about a mantra is, is I can grab onto it when I have a hard time grabbing onto anything else. And often for me, there's a rhythm to it where I can be walking the dog or on a run or cooking in the kitchen, doing the dishes. And I can say one of those things. And usually I'll say one that I need in the moment. Like I'm in my body, I'm of my body, I'm with my body. I'm in my body, I'm of my body, I'm with my body. Just trying to center myself and remind myself that I'm okay. And so I just think creating your own mantra is a really good way to kind of ground and remind yourself that if you decided to never do anything else, emotional intelligence wise or centering or whatever, you are okay exactly how you are today. You're okay. You're enough. Just being you in the world is enough. Full stop. Because I can say that to myself and then go, well, I want to do this and this. It's not. doesn't mean that you shouldn't, couldn't, oughtn't do more reflection and work. That's just extra. That's just icing on the cake. You are the cake. You are the cake. You are enough. And so the mantras I think are really powerful. They've been really centering for me. I'm going to put a book out. I'm working on my book right now of all the mantras and then my thoughts around them. And there will be some meditation. And Todd and I, my husband are going to probably, I don't know if it's going to be a full album, but I want to do some music along with it. Some of it will be agents of future music, but, um, you know, just a book to remind you that, There's a mantra for everything to center yourself and maybe you just haven't thought about it yet. And then the last thing I'd like to say is what I say at the end of my podcast. And it came to me when my kids were really small. And the reason it came to me is because I realized that I have a lot of fear about keeping my kids safe because, you know, I'm a parent, but also I have my own baggage of my own childhood that I I'm working through. And I worked through a lot of that while my kids were very young. And when they would leave for school, there was some fear around it because once they leave my house, I have no control. Granted, I really have very little control anyway, but I can fool myself and believe that I have control when they're with me, that I ultimately will be able to protect them from everything, which is not true. And so I would, whenever I would say goodbye to them, when they left for school, I would say, remember who you are. And I say this at the end of my podcast, and I know I'm saying it to my listeners, but I'm also saying it to myself, because when we remember who we are, not who we've been told we are, not who society says we are, not who culture says we are, but when we remember who we are, everything changes. So I just said to them when they left for school, remember who you are, and that's it. That's all I want for anybody, and for myself, is for me to remember who I really am.
0: Angie, thank you. Thank you for sharing, for holding the space for me and for people listening. Thank you for your work as a spiritual companion and for advocating for spiritual companionship through your work and through your podcast. And thank you for extending us the gift of grace to be who we are.
1: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
0: If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.